Hi, this is Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast, the podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Tom Hall said you won't get to multiplication if you don't have a vision that requires it. For decades, Harry Brown pursued a vision for multiplication until God gave him a strategy that would help him get there. It starts in an unusual place. I served for 44 years in a ministry called City Team, and City Team grew out of the San Jose Rescue Mission, so their core focus was alcoholic men on the street and inner-city kids and uh, drug addicts and abused and addicted women, uh, living and working in an inner city community in uh, California, San Francisco Bay Area that became infamous as the murder capital of the United States, which means on a per capita basis, more people got killed there than any other place in the nation at that time. So my, my wife and I uh, decided that at the board's request, we would move into that community and we would try to do Bible clubs in the neighborhood, and our aspiration was that by working with kids and the families and so forth, we'd be able to bring fundamental change to that community, because it was a nice bite-sized little community. It had about 20,000 people, Um, but with that 20,000 people, they figured that there's something in the range of 3,000 cars per day entered and exited for drug transactions, And that uh, engendered all kinds of violence and crime and so forth and so on. And that led to that infamous title. Well, we moved in there and uh, both of my kids were born there. So I say they were born on the mission field and uh, we stood out. Um, We were the ones who uh, were so light, we glowed, so to speak. And everybody else was of a darker hue. And we went in there full of uh, all sorts of hope and all sorts of faith. And we gave very, very um, significantly and sacrificially into service. And I would have to say in retrospect that you you couldn't have been more um, sincere about what we were trying to do and you couldn't be more sacrificial. Uh, We had all kinds of ugly incidents. People throw rocks at you on the street. They come by and beat on the side of the house at two in the morning and saying, we're gonna burn this house down and cook your kids and all the rest of that. And we had the house uh, broken into five times and cleaned out. And we had the cars broken into six times. And all of that, you know, was just sort of um, the challenge that we embraced. So it wasn't something that drove us out of there. But in retrospect, what I learned is that after our five years in that community, there was a couple of handfuls of kids whose lives were totally transformed. And by God's grace, uh, we had kids who were named after us. I got the privilege of walking some girls down the aisle for the dad they never had. Uh, Things that really warmed the heart. But I'd have to say, we did not bring fundamental change to that community. And so I learned a lesson there, that it doesn't matter how sincere you are or how sacrificial you are, as long as you uh, don't have the right strategy. And I realized in retrospect that we lacked a strategy to match our aspirations. So I started thinking about that because I had been many decades working in a ministry of very broken people. And I started to think to myself, okay, when should we be satisfied? When those people are served? Well, no. When they're saved? Not yet. When those people are discipled as individuals? Mm, Not yet. When they are beginning to... 
uh, work with other people, when they're forming fellowships of Christ followers, when this is happening in the communities that they represent and so on and so forth, until I came to the end of that chain, and there was a long chain there. When I came to the end of that chain, I added in the phrase, and all of this is happening without you. And it's the without you that really captured my mind because as I begin to think about it, long before I was using the term movement, what I was realizing is that you, if you cannot create a chain reaction that can maintain its quality without you, you are essentially not having a Great Commission conversation. Because I had traveled enough places in the world and I had seen enough of the damage that I knew money wasn't going to solve it. And I knew that organized structures, because of their limitations of people, of resources, of um, the need for diversity and so forth, they weren't going to solve it. So how's it going to get done? And eventually I came to the conclusion for myself that the only way, underline that and make it blink red, the only way to complete the Great Commission is if ordinary people are multiplying disciples in their natural networks. Because I begin to observe and say, okay, what is the problem? Before you can talk about the solution, you got to get grips on the problem. Well, the problem is obviously the lost. Well, what do the lost look like? Well, it's pretty hard to find a common denominator for the lost other than that they are lost. The reality is they're somewhere between five and six billion. And scholars disagree on the number. It doesn't matter. That, that's a number of magnitude that says it's an incredibly big challenge. So what characterizes them? Well, they're very dispersed, they're everywhere. They're very diverse, which means one of the things that has really bedeviled the missionary enterprise is the idea that one size fits all. But that diversity argues absolutely diametrically opposed to the idea one size fits all. So you have them dispersed, you have them diverse, and they're very difficult because if it was easy, it'd already be done. So as I'm sitting there pondering these kinds of things and saying, okay, I lacked a strategy in that little inner city community, what would the strategy look like? What are the component parts? Now, there's all kinds of people that are thinking the same kinds of thoughts, they're writing books. It wasn't like we invented anything. And, and most of my uh, early movement mindset was shaped and nurtured by David Watson. Mm -hmm. There was a point at which the board of city team um, asked me to launch a church planting division on a totally clean sheet of paper. It was pretty much boiled down to, we want you to go make good things happen far away and you can eat what you kill on a fundraising basis and report back and let us know how it's going. So I had to wrestle with the idea of, okay, what's that going to look like? Um, and I started looking at the multitude of high-quality organizations that are out there and said, okay, what would be distinct? Um, what is the value that we have to offer to the missionary enterprise? And so as I'm pondering and thinking these things and developing some uh, early strategies, uh, some of which um, were nice, I would say good things happen, but they wouldn't rate above nice. They would just rate okay. It wasn't like time was wasted. But it also wasn't a revolution. Then uh, God brought along this guy named David Watson. And David had something that we hadn't encountered before, which was a clearly articulated strategy and the experience to back it up. So that, um, 
that was a, a critical juncture for a city team at that point. And the president at that time, a man named Pat Robertson, had the, uh, the vision and the courage to bring somebody as radical as David Watson into what used to be the San Jose Rescue Mission mm-hmm. and to uh, say, we're, we're going to be listening and embracing these things. And that portends a whole lot of change. And we all know change is not simple. So in, in that dynamic, uh, David uh, joined City Team, I believe it was in uh, 2005. And in March of 2005 is when we kind of put a stake in the ground and said, we're going to be a DMM organization and we're going to start be doing DMM as the church planning methodology. Prior to that, it was mostly cell church kind of format. So as, as we launched in sort of parallel fashion in West Africa and in East Africa, uh, the teams on the ground were coached by David and begin to become practitioners in their own right. And God continued to pour out his favor on that, and it continued to grow and and develop. And I think what happened in the development is a whole bunch of world-class leaders on the ground begin to shape and refine something that continued to evolve. And it's not like it went a different direction. It went farther up the mountain. It's the same direction. It's the same goal. It just got better as it progressed. And as this began to gain momentum, we began to see these chain reactions of disciples making disciples that was resulting in a cascade of churches planting churches. Give us a case study of one of those early breakthroughs. Yeah. um, So this is a West African story, and and it has a starting point that is filled with tension. There is a, a lot of church planners in an outdoor training getting ready to get their marching orders and take off. And uninvited into that group came a paramount chief. And that term means, you know, the big dog on the block. There's all sorts of sub chiefs, but the paramount chief is the t- top of the pyramid. Also happened to be a Muslim imam. Well, he entered in with his entourage, uninvited. And of course, there's a deathly silence that settles over the crowd. And he cries out, who's the leader here? Well, in this context, that could be the beginning of a very bad day. There's there's a lot of strife. And uh, our guy raised his hand and said, I am. And he told me later, I did that because if there's any bad news that's going to happen, I want it to happen to me and not them. So this paramount chief imam gets right up kind of nose to nose with them. And, you know, you can just feel the tension. You know, what's going to happen? Is everything going to break loose? What should we do? Should we try to intervene? All this kind of stuff, you know, is swirling in the group. And then the guy just just demands, as paramount chiefs do, whatever you've been giving to those other villages over here, you must give it to me. And it was like, okay, what are you talking about? Well, we're talking about the storytellers. The, the church planters in oral context are often using story as their entree to the scripture. So you have to bring us those storytellers. Well, when this particular person with his pedigree and his position does that, he's putting everything on the line. He's risking his own life. He's risking his family's life. He's risking his livelihood in the future, his position. Everything's on the line here. And so we asked him, why? What is the why behind this? They told us. He said, I have been watching. And what I have seen is that Men have stopped beating their children and abusing their wives. 
I have seen them stop drinking. I have seen them start showing up for work. And I have seen them come to the villages that were their blood enemies for generations and help them in their gardens and help repair the roads that serve both villages. And whatever you are giving them, you must give to us. Send us those storytellers. And this is not a request. This is, this is the paramount chief telling you how it's going to be. Well, that is a beautiful combination of the, the transforming power of the gospel, not the, the cheap sense of transformation. You're talking about true transformation. And people see it, a change of behavior that reflects being taught to obey everything the Lord commanded. Now, that story by itself is a great one to stand alone. But the last time we counted, and it's been a while, it happened 35 different times where a chief leader or a Muslim imam approached the people in that area and says, I want what they have. You must come. So you're asking about, you know, what starts the movement? Well, it, it got rooted in a place and it was truly transformative. And as it was, it was noticeable. And as it was noticed, people actually begin to pull. You weren't pushing yeah, sure. it. Is no. we begin to say, you have to start with all three dimensions of life at the same time, wide, deep, and long. Everything in life is 3D. So what does that mean? Wide is about growth. The scripture says in John 15, by this is my father glorified, that you bear much fruit. There's an expectation. So there has to be a wide, a growth factor, but there has to be a deep factor, and that fruit should remain. So there's a, a, a mandatory maturing, and you can't sacrifice one for the other. It's not about, well, we're the big growth kind and we're the go deep kind. No, they have to be at the same time. What is long? Long is about leadership development. The idea of leadership development is, in my mind, essential to movement. Think of it this way. You have to have a quality leader at every link of a generational chain, or your chain will be broken and you're no longer in the movement business. And whose responsibility is that? Well, that is what I would say is the apostolic responsibility. We, we use the term that we think is equivalent of a catalyst. We would say we have two fundamental roles, a catalyst and a coach. Well, what's the role of a catalyst or the apostle? To help things happen, come into being that could not happen without you, but do not depend on you. Now to say not depend on you, you have to start being a coach. What is the coach's role? Make sure it's deeply rooted and make sure it's reproductive. So we would say our roles are in the catalyst coach combination. And in that, one of your primary duties is leadership development. And it has to be from day one. It's very hard to make a, a U-turn on this road. And everybody knows if you have a genetic defect and it multiplies, not only do you have double the problem, but it's going to keep spreading and it's going to keep amplifying and you're never going to get it back. So, you know, the old adage, start like you want to finish, becomes very important here. And where you want to finish is a quality leader, a son of the soil, the daughter of the soil, at every link of a generational chain. And to do that, you got to start from the beginning and you have to help them with the reality of both spiritual maturity and the increasing complexity. But when you think of what is a movement designed to do, I find there's a lot of people that perceive it 
as a linear set of links in a chain. It just goes out and they don't say this, but what the implication is, it's largely homogeneous. Well, if it stays homogeneous, you're no longer having a great commission conversation because the loss are very diverse. So if it's going to go viral, and I know that word is so overused both for the internet and for disease, but what does it mean? It means that when it leaves you, it doesn't stay like you, intentionally so. So everybody has crossover in their circle of influence. The people in this circle have other relationships that lead to other circles. So when the gospel crosses from one circle to the next, the diversity and therefore the difficulty has just increased. Now it hubs and breaks again into a different stream. It hubs and breaks again. That's what viral looks like. It's all over the place. Well, if, if you are not extremely intentional about leadership development that can handle magnitude, it's expanding, but also diversity and the difficulty it engenders, then you're going to have a fundamental problem to achieve the vision that you have is the gospel is touching every segment of every society, not just one stream. So this, this uh, you know, leadership development and the idea of it has to be in 3D, wide, deep, and long, all at the same time, is one of the operative things that you know, was just distilled over time as we tried to, uh, what we call, listen, learn, and adapt. Well, by God's grace, um, I think we have a pretty high ratio of the kind of quality of leaders who are creating leaders who are creating leaders. I, I think it's fair to say that there's lots of cascades of leaders. It just happens a couple months ago. I just wanted to find out. So I asked all the field leaders to give me an anecdotal report on the workforce. And anecdotal, I mean, we didn't do a scientific study and whatever. I asked each field leader, tell me who is on your team that makes the wheels go round. Well, the number came back at well north of 23,000. And I was just rejoicing when I heard that number because there's a very, very small percentage of them that would get any kind of compensation for what they're doing. Most of them are just captured by the cause. They're doing it because this is their assignment from God. What do they get from us? They get the mindset, they get the tools, they get the coaching, and they get the encouragement but they're not getting a paycheck to do this. And so this cascade of leaders of that magnitude is what makes this um, possible. And I, I look at that and I say, wow, um, that warms my heart because my impression is that's pretty much what the book of Acts had to look like. Yes, there is apostles who are catalysts, things brought into being that could not happen without them, but it didn't depend on them. Now, were they there for course correction and all that kind of stuff? Absolutely. No question about that. But at the same time, for all of the difficulty and all the chaos and all of the letters that said you need to kind of course correct here, the bottom line is a whole bunch of people that were what I would call ordinary folks made it happen in basically every segment of every society which is why the scripture says the world turned upside down. Um, in, in a big, broad brush, um, we have a lot of work in sub-Saharan Africa and emerging work in North Africa, South Asia, which for us is five countries. It's India, it's Pakistan, it's Bangladesh, it's Nepal and Bhutan, and then Southeast Asia, 
dominated by Indonesia, but there's another nine countries. That would be kind of um, our scope right now. And in that, um, by God's grace, we're now engaged with DMM activities in north of 800 people groups. In addition to the people groups, there's another 75 what we would call population segments. What that means is street kids, prostitutes, prisoners, gang members, slum dwellers, those sorts of things. And then in addition to that, we currently have DMM activities in 45 different urban centers. And these aren't just the, uh, you know, the global south kind of uh, centers. It's Glasgow, Scotland and London, England and um, uh, places like Brisbane, Australia, which I don't know where you live, but you live somewhere over there. <laughs> We're a thousand miles south. Um, okay. Okay. But, uh, Brisbane's a great city. Yeah. Uh, places like uh, Berlin and so forth. So the, the reason that that's such a big deal is, uh, I would say, my perspective is that the urban environment is the pioneer area of missions. There's certainly a lot of people group work that's left to be done. No dispute on that. Having said that, where is the trend going? All of the stats and so forth would say right now the world is 52 or 55 percent urban. We, we've come across a study that said it's actually 84 percent urban. The difference in the studies was one was borrowing the government statistics and just, you know, compiling them. And we all know that you got a couple problems. One, they don't use the same way to measure kind of thing. So you got apples and oranges. And the second is they all lie for a living. That's the nature of governments. So, you know, it could be plus or minus a big number. The, the study that came up with 84% was done by satellite. They mapped the earth. They looked for concentrations that are over 100,000. And they said that's an urban threshold. Well, that's a reasonable urban threshold. And if it's 84% at 100,000 concentration or more, it says that this is a extremely high priority for the missionary enterprise. What does the urban situation look like? You have compressed diversity. You got a lot of people who are very different in the same space. And so from our perspective, you have to put a different pair of glasses on. And what those glasses need to do is to look into all that diversity and see where there is enough affinity to create an identity, something that holds them together. And within that identity, there's enough magnitude to warrant a strategy that can lead to a movement. I think that's part of the pioneer work of the urban arena is to be able to look into the diversity and see, okay, a movement strategy can be developed for this category of people uh, by this identity that surrounds their affinity that can create, that we can create a movement with them. Are you seeing in a Western urban setting, are you seeing uh, any signs of multiplication there? Yes, the answer is yes, but that stops short of what you want. So multiplication, yes, but we define a movement, and there's nothing sacred about this, just our choice. We say a movement is at least 100 new churches that have multiplied to at least four generations. So when you ask, is there multiplication? Yeah, we can give you case studies where there's four generations of this and so forth and so on, but it hasn't hit that kind of threshold, a hundred churches. And there's a, an inherent difficulty at saying, okay, what is a church in a context that thinks it has to have a steeple and a pastor and a structure? 
that gets uh, to be a more intense discussion in the urban environment. I think it has answers, but it's still, it's a factor. So if you're going to hold to a, a movement threshold that has, you know, some serious uh, parameter to it, no, we haven't been seeing that yet, but we have been seeing encouraging signs of the growth that's happening, the momentum and the trend. And uh, any insights about what it takes to at least see a multiplication in a Western urban setting? Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to default back to the very first thing is put the prayer base in place. Um, the, the West has this notion that they're not struggling with the spiritual strongholds like the rest of the world. They are. <laughs> they're just better camouflaged. You know, when you don't see a witch doctor doing blood sacrifice under the tree, it doesn't mean that the demonic forces don't have strongholds at work. So put the prayer base in place. That's number one. Number two is you, you have to change the paradigm. Right now, the dominant paradigm of anybody who was born and bred of Western Christianity is it's not my job. Now, they may not say those words, but that is absolutely what they think and how they act. And it's, it's a fundamental problem that has to be broken before you're going to see movements. Because if you leave it to the trained and paid professionals, game's over already. Uh, you can't win. And when I say you can't win, I mean in the sense of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, run to win. You, you can't win by leveraging on the professionals. It has to be Joe and Sally Smith. That's the American version of ordinary people. It has to be Joe and Sally Smith that are multiplying uh, disciples in their natural networks. Now, part of the, the difference that has to happen, especially in the urban environment, is to recognize that if you had a giant-sized pyramid of the workforce, you take the big, 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 big base, it's Joe and Sally Smith, they're not going to do much more than have something going in their close circle of influence or their living room. But they are absolutely essential to the overall strategy. As you move up that pyramid, people have different levels and layers of strategy they're responsible for, and as you get to the top, it's relatively few people who can see the big hole that is so crazy diverse and actually separated into parts. But when you have the people that have the gifting and the anointing to do that, and they can empower the other layers to fill the function in terms of the overall mosaic, then yes, it's actually practically possible to see these things work. One other thing that... Um, has to get into the context, and that's the difference between knowledge and obedience. Most everybody in the West came to faith through a gospel of salvation, not a gospel of the kingdom. The difference in that is a gospel of salvation makes you understand clearly you're a sinner, he's a savior, and you can have eternity. But that produces believers. A gospel of the kingdom makes you understand from the beginning that the king is in charge of everything and you need to obey him accordingly. Therefore, you're not just a believer, you're a follower. As soon as you become a follower, you have a DNA of obedience that now means yes, no matter what the question is when God asks, and the attitude of obedience to back it up. The, the issue that separates between knowledge and obedience is as big a gulf as you can find. There's lots and lots and lots of knowledge in the West, but the obedience factor is very limited. 
I, I've been in lots of contexts where people either scratch their head at, you know, what are you talking about, obedience, or actually back up and hunch their shoulders because it's an offensive concept. What, what could be more fundamental to, to being a follower of Jesus than obeying the king in everything? And until that particular stronghold gets broken and until leadership begins to actively say, here's what it looks like, here's what it means, here's what you must do, and get them to do it with others. Until that little equation comes into place, we're not going to see many movements. So the, the latest report, which when you looked at the website, you haven't seen the update, the latest report would push the movement total to 146. As far as how many of those are led by Westerners, the answer is zero. Hmm. And, and that is intentionally so. Uh, start like you want to finish. If a Westerner uh, or an outsider of any character is leading something, it is artificial. And things that are artificial do not last long and they do not reproduce. So if, in fact, to try to achieve a goal, you insert something from the outside that's artificial, you may get the short-term benefit is very impressive, but it's like a shooting star. It's very impressive for a short period of time. Then it fades away and that's it. So in the, it's not to, to be just cutesy, but in the idea of start like you want to finish, it has to be the inside folks that own it and the outside folks have to stay in their lane, which means you're a catalyst, help get launched, you're a coach, make sure that it can stay on track and can reproduce without you. But don't get in there and take over. As soon as you, as soon as you do, you've ruined the DNA. Training, the vast majority, and certainly the stuff on the ground, is all sons of the soil or people who have come from one place that is of the soil and are training in another place. So I'll tell you a funny little story. Uh, our guy who leads East Africa, his uh, home is in Nairobi, Kenya. So he's Kenyan, and his name is Ila Tassi. He was doing DMM training in Tajikistan. So that's way far away. So he sends me this emergency message, you know, the email with the red exclamation mark in it. Mm -hmm. And he says, Harry, Harry, quick, get onto Google Maps. Go over the Russian-speaking world. Drill down into Tajikistan. Look for the black dot. It's me. I'm the only one. <laughs> so, uh, you know, clearly that's a cross-cultural situation where anecdotally we have the first black church planter to do any training in Tajikistan. I can't prove that, but it could be true because he told me everybody and their brother was photobombing him and getting next to him to take a picture and selfies and all the rest. But th the point of that is it's not Western people that are doing that. It it's folks from outside the West that are doing that training that is truly being spread around the world. We, we counted last time that uh, we checked at about 125 countries that we've provided training in. I, I will tell you a story. So this goes way back into my career, and I've been in full-time ministry now coming up 47 years, where um, one of our teammates, a guy named Jim Yost, who was working in the far eastern edge of Indonesia called Irian Jaya. Now it's called Papua. At that point, Irian Jaya was famous for being the ends of the earth. You know, and uh, it was famous as well for Stone Age tribal people that until somewhere in the 60s uh, had no idea that they weren't the only people on the earth, you know, that kind of thing. So in that environment, 
uh, Jim had been working and he said, I, I want you to come and meet a man named Yingongan. Okay, who's Yingongan? Well, he's one of the first people that came to faith and he became, uh, as God produced a, a people movement, bringing almost his entire tribe to faith, he became one of the leading elders of this uh, church movement that birthed. And he said, he's, he's got a story that uh, you just need to hear. So I made my way out to Erie and Jai, which is quite a trek. I believe that trip took me 46 hours to get there, and I had to go through 16 time zones. <laughs> it was like, oh, my goodness. So uh, I sat down with this uh, very nondescript individual named Yingongan in a pig pen, literally, sitting on a log with the pig snorting and the chickens carrying on and all this chaos going on. And I said, tell me, how, how did you come to faith? And he began to share a story about how the legend among his people, as he grew up as a kid and listened to the stories around the fire, was that someday people with skin that is as white as the clouds will come and they will bring the words of life. And so this was the legend that was reinforced through the generations. So the, the time came when the jungle drums sounded their strangers in the valley and they have skin like the clouds. And of course, these are the pioneer missionaries uh, from all of those groups who broke through the jungle barrier and did such a service to be able to plow such difficult ground. And as those missionaries came in and learned the language and earned their credibility, they began to speak of the words of life. Well, as Yingongan listened as a teenager, kind of from the fringe, about these words of life, eventually he got to the point where he said to some of his friends, other teenagers, we, we should go up into the mountains and we should discuss the words of life. So they got their little camping gear together, whatever it was, and they took off for this trek and they got to their place and they set up and they begin to talk about the words of life. And then something stunning happened as Ying Ganing told me that there came a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And there appeared on the heads of all these individuals, tongues of fire, and they began to speak in languages they didn't know. And as you can imagine, I'm listening to a firsthand mm. direct testimony of God choosing to repeat the miracle of Pentecost. Mm. I was dumbfounded. He goes on to say, as God's spirit moved in, People who were in a culture that embraced witchcraft and embraced uh, tribal warfare and embraced all these other things that are just demonic at their root began to rapidly change. They left their idol worship and their, their demons. They left their warfare and all of these things that, you know, it was a darkness to light transformation, just stunning. And almost everybody in his people group. Um, came to be followers of Jesus. And then the story goes on and it's, you know, just beautiful in its dimensions and I'm overwhelmed. Mm. Um, I tried to take notes and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, you get so lost in the story that the, the notes are, they're not adequate, let's put it that way. So as I left, uh, I just said to myself, someday I'm coming back. Someday I will hear more of this story. So time goes on. And I forget how many years, but the day came and I said, I'm going back. I'm going to find Yingongan. It was, again, quite a trek, but I found him. 
And I went with him with open arms and said, Yingongan, tell me how it's going. And he looked at me with hollow eyes and then turned away and stared off in the sky. His countenance fell. He said, Harry, the young people no longer follow Jesus. What? What happened? He said, they've gone back to warfare. They've gone back to idol worship. They've gone back to their demons. They've gone back to this, that, and the other thing. And now I hear them talking around the fire about what would it be like to kill someone and eat their flesh, to be cannibals again. I was horrified, stunned. I couldn't believe it. So I said, Yingongan, what happened? And the words that he said scarred my soul and were part of the big change in my life. He said, we didn't disciple our children. Then he turned and walked away and I've never seen him since. Now that phrase, he meant it biologically, but it's so true. It is so true. We have not discipled our children. We have not created a legacy. There's three places in the scripture where it says God's command to a thousand generations. Have we done what we need to do to ensure a legacy that can keep its quality without us? And Yingongan's haunting words remind me over and over and over again, is what you're doing something that will effectively create the leadership of the next generation who have the DNA deeply rooted in their soul and the commitment that goes with it to say, I'm not only going to live it out, I'm going to pass it on. When, when I get to bedrock on movements, that's where I go. And it influences everything I think and everything we do. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can visit movements.net where you'll find a wealth of resources, podcasts, videos, articles, and books all around the theme of multiplying disciples and churches everywhere.